Uh, good evening, uh, everybody, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I welcome you to our event, We Need to Talk About Antarctica. Uh, this is um, uh, uh, the first, the opening event of the 2016 fourth uh, Sydney Democracy Network Festival of Democracy, and I warmly welcome uh, each and every one of you to this uh, event. I want to acknowledge that we meet on the lands of the Gadigal people, who for some 40,000 years have uh, uh, been on this land and whose land this remains and will forever remain. I, uh, many people made this whole festival and this event tonight uh, possible. I want to thank in particular the uh, SDN office team who are sort of over in that direction, uh, led by Lindy Baker, by Jiang uh, 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 Janice, and also by Kirsten Schneider, who traveled all the way from Berlin to help us put this uh, together. Kirsten, thank you very much for, for coming. And also to Meredith Hall of Sydney Ideas, who are the uh, co-sponsors of, of this evening's uh, event. Our topic, it's an unusual topic for this university. Uh, it's an unusual topic in most institutions, is Antarctica and why we need to uh, talk about it. Um, I didn't mention that my name is John Keane and I'm Professor of Politics uh, here at the university and I've had for some time an interest in Antarctica. We're very uh, lucky and privileged to have uh, four uh, really outstanding, among the most outstanding speakers uh, on this uh, subject and we are going to go in alphabetical order tonight, uh, beginning with uh, Dr. Anne-Marie uh, Brady, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of, of Canterbury in Christchurch. She has made her pilgrimage uh, to Antarctica and survived, uh, and is uh, today uh, still a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC. She's a Senior Fellow at the China Policy Institute at the University of Nottingham. Anne-Marie is unusual in this field because uh, fluent in Mandarin, she has written lots on China, but she also writes a great deal on Antarctica and more recently has brought those two subjects together. She is the editor-in-chief of the Polar Journal, which you can access uh, online. And uh, soon to be published is her book, China as a Polar Great Power. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie, for joining us from New Zealand. Then we go to Tasmania. Uh, we have a Tasmanian uh, lineup tonight where it happens that really the, I would say the bulk of really outstanding work is uh, happening there on the subject of Antarctica. Indy Hodgson Johnston, thank you very much for coming. Uh, uh, Indy teaches legal reasoning, taught law, Antarctic studies uh, at the University of Tasmania. She's doing her PhD almost soon. Uh, to be completed on international law at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies and the Antarctic Climate and Ecosystems um, CRC in, in Hobart. She's interested in uh, such areas, a wide range of areas, including laws of sovereignty, territorial acquisition, territorial disputes, and uh, boundaries. We then have uh, Dr. Tony Press, um, who is a graduate of the University of Sydney and uh, today an adjunct professor at the Antarctic Climate and Ecosystems Cooperative Research Centre in Hobart. 
Um, Tony, I would describe as a wise survivor of the institutions of the Antarctic Treaty System. And if you need to know anything about the intricacies of that polity, such as it is, Tony is the person to speak to, and he will no doubt tell us uh, more about this. He was, from 1998 uh, to 2008, the director of the Australia Antarctic uh, Division. And in 2014, he was the lead inquirer of the influential report presented to the Australian government, the 20-year Australian Antarctic Strategic Plan, which I think um, it's fair to say yielded at least one ship um, uh, as a consequence of that report. And finally, but a not... A very big ship. Yes, it's a rather large ship that can go south a long way. Uh, and last, and certainly not least, is uh, Matt King, Professor of uh, Polar Geodesy. Geodesy, I got it right, an ARC Future <laughs> Fellow at the University of uh, Tasmania. There he works with the Surveying and Spatial Sciences Group, forming a part of UTAS researchers working on solid earth geophysics and geodesy. His work uh, focuses on the use of state-of-the-art uh, geodetic tools to tackle problems related to earth geophysics, notably sea level change, polar ice mass balance, and the deformation of the earth. So it's time to talk about Antarctica, to set the scene, to provide some feel for this evening's event, I'd like to begin with a rather obvious observation. Slowly, but surely, the frozen, as it's often called, seventh continent, known as Antarctica, is becoming the object of political tussles over its identity and its global significance. What Antarctica is, is more and more a matter of conjecture, imagining scientific knowledge claims, power maneuvers. Polarized versions of this polar space are becoming obvious, and I want to offer three examples of this contestation of uh, the meaning and the global significance of Antarctica, looking, uh, so to say, at three contested visions of what Antarctica is. The first, just randomly selected, could be called Antarctopia. You may know that in 2014, ladies and gentlemen, the Venice Biennale of Architecture uh, hosted for the first time a whole continent, Antarctica. It was commissioned by artist Alexander uh, Ponomarev, uh, and it was curated by Nadim Saman. The Antarctica Pavilion was the first ever rejection of the principle of national pavilions. It was an exhibition with a difference. It's a pavilion. It was designed as a pavilion to be in motion uh, that would know no fixed territory, that um, would go beyond, uh, float beyond Europe to be displayed uh, globally with uh, international uh, scientists, artists, and others uh, supporting it. That Antarctopia uh, pavilion tried, as it said in the program notes, to define an expanded Antarctic imaginary. And it went on to describe the way in which Antarctica actually defies a lot of the political thinking and the political presumptions uh, of uh, world politics, in particular because it is a symbol of going beyond uh, sovereignty, a word which, of course, in the era of Operation Sovereign Borders is back big time. That's one, uh, one vision of Antarctica, one interpretation of Antarctica. There's a second 
uh, vision, uh, I came across recently an advertisement by the London Cape Town-based White Desert Travel Company. And I'll read you, if I may, just uh, a few lines from their uh, description of, um, of a tour, an upcoming tour. It goes like this. White Desert, a private camp on the Antarctic mainland, has been given a lavish refurbishment in time for the start of its 10th summer season in November. The camp, whose previous guests have included Prince Harry and Bear uh, Grylls, now features comforts that belie its extreme location a dining tent with a round oak table and fur-lined chairs, a library and bar with plush sofas and deep rugs, and the six spherical sleeping pods, each for two guests, have ensuite bathrooms. Guests travel by plane from Cape Town, a five-and-a-half-hour flight on an Aleutian 76. Trips on offer include an eight-day itinerary with visits to a 6,000-strong emperor penguin colony and a flight onwards to the geographic South Pole. It costs £64,000. It's about $150,000 if you've got it. And the next departure, uh, get in at whitedesert.com, is on November the 18th. Third and finally, a worst-case scientific scenario of the year 2100, sketched um, uh, recently by the New Zealand uh, famous paleoclimatologist uh, Tim Naish. He's a world-renowned specialist in uh, the reconstruction of past ice sheet formations, and he's interested and has written much on global sea level uh, challenges uh, that are linked to the continent of Antarctica. This is not his prediction, but he does sketch in detail a worst-case scenario for the year uh, uh, leading to the year 2100. It's a scenario in which... um, Uh, the surface melting of the ice sheet uh, speeds up rapidly, in which ice shelf collapse happens, in which marine ice sheet instability uh, continues, initially contributing to sea level rises of a metre up to possibly 15 metres or greater than that. A 40% reduction, according to this uh, worst-case scenario, in winter sea ice as the ocean warms by plus four degrees uh, Celsius, so that there's no summer sea ice by 2100. The Antarctic uh, bottom water formation uh, becomes extinct. The ocean becomes highly stratified because of uh, melting water. Remember that Antarctica has some 70% of our planet's uh, fresh water. And the Southern Ocean on this scenario shrinks as warmer subtropical waters push uh, south. He goes on in this worst-case scenario to point out that most probably all of the regulatory controls associated with the Antarctic uh, Treaty System uh, begin to disintegrate. Commercial exploitation increases. Reinsurers globally refuse to cover insurers uh, with risk of of coastal uh, flooding. Um, The whole Antarctic Treaty System on this scenario becomes moribund. Conflicts uh, certainly increase, rivalries between states happen, and uh, commercially oriented uh, uh, companies and other bodies begin to look at energy uh, and fish and tourism as uh, major sources of profit. Um, It is a scenario, finally, in which there are invasive uh, species 
uh, if you go, for example, to, to Punta Arenas, to Inach, to the Chilean um, uh, uh, Research uh, Institute, you will hear scientists on this scenario talking about the coming of, of uh, uh, grasses which are not native and probably the first living um, species, uh, uh, animal species on the continent in this scenario would be rats. Ladies and gentlemen, that is enough, I think, on uh, the contested visions of uh, Antarctica and why we should speak about Antarctica. Uh, I want to turn now to the panelists uh, to give us their 10 minutes worth of uh, why it is that we do need to talk about Antarctica. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John, for that very interesting introduction. And you talked about contested visions of Antarctica, and I think what you've got here um, on this panel is um, interesting. Another angle on this is the different perspectives that we bring from our, our different research disciplines. And I can't speak for the others, but speaking as political scientists, I find that it's often very good to introduce to non-political science audiences the core kind of questions that we ask in political science and core things that we're obsessed about. So basically, in political science, we look at politics as a, as a spectrum between cooperation and conflict, and we're very interested in the study of power. So you need to know this about where I'm coming from in, in Antarctic studies to understand my perspective and the things that I'm concerned about. And uh, the topic that I'm going to speak on today is great power politics in Antarctica. And what I've written on um, comes out of the findings of my new book, China as a Polar Great Power. And I, I did have an image to show you, actually, but I forgot to set it up. So we, might, we may have it later. It's not important necessarily for what I want to say right now. But it is, shows another vision. So if we have time, I'll show it. Great power politics in Antarctica are... Um, reflective of great power politics in, in, in all places of undetermined sovereignty around the world for the great powers. So space, the oceans, the polar regions, and cyberspace are also places of undetermined sovereignty. And that's, those are areas where you will find the great powers very interested in opportunities and, and, the, and the countries that will have the capability to take advantages of opportunities there. In the Cold War era, the United States and the Soviet Union dominated the Antarctic, and for most of the post-Cold War era, the United States has been the dominant power on the Antarctic ice. However, as US global power has declined, especially since 2008, a host of emergent states are beginning to take advantage of the power vacuum, and as I found in my book, China is at the head of the pack. Despite the Obama administration's policy to rebalance to the Asia-Pacific, the United States is preoccupied in the Middle East and increasingly in Europe. Relative to other foreign policy commitments, Antarctic affairs are not a priority for Washington. U.S. capacities there are in slow decline, as symbolized by the U.S. administration's inability to finance new icebreakers to service at bases in Antarctica. And meanwhile, since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia has become a weak but sometimes belligerent player 
beset by ageing infrastructure and limited budgets. Antarctica was the site for imperialist expansion, exploration and exploitation by leading states and their agents from the 1800s through the mid-20th century. Russia, the United States, Great Britain, Norway, France, Germany and Japan were early key actors in the region, reflecting their respective power or aspirations to power in the global system at the time. States geographically close to Antarctica, such as Chile, Argentina, Australia and New Zealand, took a proprietary interest in the territory, though they frequently lacked the capabilities of major powers to back up those interests. Then, as now, Antarctica has always been a mirror for the changing global balance of power and geopolitical rivalry. And it's significant that Germany and Japan the losers of the two major conflicts of the 20th century were both forced to renounce any claims to territorial interests in Antarctica as part of the terms of peace. Germany in the 1919 Treaty of Versailles and Japan in the 1951 Treaty of San Francisco. The great powers and their allies have three core strategic interests in Antarctica in the current era. Security, resources and science. To varying degrees, according to their capabilities, all the great powers in Antarctica are either currently acting on these interests or ensuring their right to act on them is not taken away by others. Since 1961, Antarctica has been managed under the Antarctic Treaty System, a series of international agreements that began with the Antarctic Treaty. The treaty was initiated by the USA and its allies in the words of US Secretary of State John Foster Dulles in 1956, so as, in his words, to keep Antarctica in friendly hands. And the US negotiator of the treaty, Paul Daniels, further emphasised this by saying that the treaty would be useful because it would be easier to control the Russians if they were in a regime than if they were out of one. The Antarctic Treaty privileges science as the core legitimate activity on the continent and one of the key resources to be extracted from the continent. Antarctic scientific activities are the sole justification for states to be allowed to participate in Antarctic governance. Well, from the point of view of polar scientists, Antarctica is a perfect laboratory for many areas of scientific research and the privileged research budgets granted for Antarctic projects by many governments is an added incentive. But from the perspectives of their governments, establishing national Antarctic science programs is the means to establish political influence in Antarctic affairs, while setting up Antarctic scientific bases enables effective control over key swathes of Antarctic territory, and effective control is important in an area of undetermined sovereignty. 53 states have signed the Antarctic Treaty, though only 28, the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Parties, have a say in how the continent is governed. And the ATCPs are an exclusive group of states who have the resources and scientific infrastructure needed to conduct Antarctic science. So there have been quite a um, number of years where the signatory to the treaties have been fairly static, um, since 1991 when the Antarctic Protocol was signed. However, however, since 2011, five new states, Iceland, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Mongolia and Pakistan, have signed the treaty, 
while Turkey and Iran have announced plans to set up Antarctic bases. And Turkey joined the treaty in 1995, but Iran has not yet said whether it will sign up. And meanwhile, global environmental groups are lobbying governments and attempting to sway public opinion to preserve and extend environmental management in Antarctica. And their concern is not unwarranted, because in the past five years, uh, Bulgaria, Belarus, China, India, Iran, Korea, Turkey and Russia have all publicly expressed an interest in assessing Antarctic mineral resources. And then there's other issues. Regulated and unregulated fishing in the Antarctic Ocean continues. Japan is continuing its whaling program in the Southern Ocean, despite international censure. And ever-growing global energy needs and heightened food security concerns are reawakening international interests in the resources of the Antarctic continent and its oceans. Um, but, you know, the Antarctic Treaty has um, somewhat unwieldy and non-enforceable structures, and so the instruments available to govern Antarctica may not be up to the challenge. Uh, I won't go into the mineral resources and the many other mineral resources um, in Antarctica. I'll, I'll focus a little bit more on the issue of military significance of Antarctica, because Antarctica is a valuable research site for mili militarily significant strategic research on space and climate. GPS, you, if you have one in your car, you might not realise that it relies on polar uh, satellites and satellite receiving stations in the Arctic and Antarctic. Russia and China want their own version of GPS because in the time of conflict, GPS was always designed for missile po positioning. Um, Russia and China want to make sure they have their own uh, independent system and not relying on GPS because it will not be available to them in this time of conflict. And that's one example of where there's this dual use of Antarctica that is there, um, you know, it's, it's, the potential is there. We don't have a conflict situation right now, but um, it's there, and it's being utilised. The military side has been utilised, for example, in the search for the Malay missing uh, Malaysian plane. The Chinese satellites, uh, military satellites were being used to help with that, and also when the, uh, the Australian or the Chinese icebreaker got stuck in 2014, helping to rescue an a Australian um, tourism expedition there. Again, the Chinese polar satellites, military satellites were used to help that and there was coordinated activity between the PLA and the Chinese scientific, um, Antarctic scientific program. The Article 1 of the Antarctic Treaty restricts military activities in Antarctica and the surrounding seas to peaceful purposes only. And there are a number of countries that do, um, for quite legitimately, use some um, logistics um, for uh, their military for logistics in Antarctica. But for global powers such as the United States and China and Russia, utilising military forces in Antarctica for their logistics enables them to maintain familiarity with polar conditions, which would be useful in the event of a global military crisis that affected strategic air and sea choke points such as the Panama and Suez Canals and the North Pacific. And in addition, whether or not states use their militaries for Antarctic logistics, the satellite receiving stations and telescopes housed at the Antarctic bases of rising and leading global powers such as China, India, France, Norway, Russia and the United States all have strategic dual civil military capabilities that provide an additional motivation for maintaining a physical presence there. 
The Antarctic Treaty and subsequent agreements are silent on the issue of how to deal with the military, non-peaceful aspects of this technology. And there's a problem in the structure of the Antarctic Treaty consultative meetings because they're usually pro forma affairs attended by government officials who have very limited power for setting new agendas or responding to governance challenges. And the meetings have consistently failed to address potentially high conflict issues, for example on the issue of claimant states' Antarctic continental shelf applications to the United Nations Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. And the treaty requires full consensus for all decision making. And so this enables established Antarctic players to maintain the status quo, but it doesn't allow them to address new challenges. And in many ways, the term Antarctic governance is a misnomer because there's very little oversight of the very various countries active there and almost no enforcement through the Antarctic Treaty system. The Antarctic Treaty was designed to keep conflict out of the Antarctic region and maintain the interests of the existing powers. And under those terms, it was a success. But more than two decades after the end of the Cold War, the Antarctic Treaty now has the air of an antiquated gentleman's club that's out of touch with present-day geopolitics. Some critics of the Antarctic Treaty say that the Antarctic should be run by the United Nations. And throughout the 1980s and uh, 1990s, Malaysia, supported by many other developing countries, unsuccessfully raised this point at United Nations meetings, and they were blocked by claimant states like New Zealand. The proposal feigned... uh, uh, The other critics argue that a whole new set of international laws applying to all nations, not just Antarctic Treaty members, should govern the continent... Well, in the post-Cold War, post-unipolar global order, the clash of values and visions, as as John mentioned, and the interests of emerging new powers against those of established Antarctic great and medium powers is putting the Antarctic Treaty and its instruments under increasing pressure. Thank you. Thank you very much, much, Anne-Marie. Indy. First of all, thanks very much for having me up here, John. It's a fabulous opportunity. Uh, my view is a bit more black-letter law, and since we're talking in a law faculty, that's, that's hopefully going to keep your interest for a little while. Um, so what I try and do is always provide a, a, the really black-letter legal platform that, upon which people like Tony, Anne-Marie and Matt can build, put their layers on top in their disciplines too. So this quote from 1900 sums up nicely some of the most vexing elements of Antarctic sovereignty. It's the right to territory, the legal right, the difficulty in establishing any sort of physical presence in Antarctica, the footprint of that presence, which is what I'll come back to, and the length of time that it could actually take to perfect that sovereignty. And territorial territorial sovereignty in this context... Uh, are all those sorts of concepts and more that mean a state has legally and validly achieved sovereignty over a particular bit of land. Territory, as we know, is at the centre of the legal order uh, and we've seen this quite recently in conflicts in the Crimean Peninsula, in the South China Sea and in the current Timor-Leste case with Australia. It is these disputes, their resolutions along with state practice and customary law 
that gives us the foundation of what Antarctic territorial title could actually look like. But it's good to note that this has actually been legally untested, so this is all kind of trying to build up an actual profile of what that might look like. I'm no exceptionalist, so there's definitely no Antarctopia in my head. Um, and to me, Antarctica is really no different to any other piece of territory. It's a very pretty piece of territory, but I'm a typical lawyer, so that's why. Does that work? Yeah. All right, so just briefly, just as an overview, because I'm not sure how much of this you know, seven states claim Antarctic territory, and there are two that reserve their right, Russian Federation and the US, that actually reserve their right to make a claim. They got... They said that before the Antarctic Treaty was signed. There are disputed claims between the parties and there's also a lack of recognition of any of these claims. And there is no end of commentary about the political validity of these claims, as you heard from Anne-Marie. There is much less in the way of legal discussion and, as I said, it's not tested. So to put aside these disputes that Anne-Marie mentioned before... The drafters of the Antarctic Treaty came up with Article 4, and there are three basic parts to this. That no sig signatory actually prejudiced their claim, that no activities during the treaty's life can constitute a basis for asserting, supporting or denying a claim. No new claim or no enlargement of an existing claim is to be asserted. So what does that even mean? Well, it, it's gone disappeared. There we go. Well, it's purposely ambiguous. We don't know. It's a big shrug. It's designed to be that way because it means that everyone can keep their political mind. Like Australia can say that it's got its claim and the US can say they've still got a reserve claim and the non-claimant states can also take part and they don't have to recognise the claims. So it's kind of just a legally ambiguous thing. So the lawyers have been very creative. It just leaves everything as it was since 1959, but it sets up an arrangement between the now 53 consenting states that the continent will be freely accessible for reasons of peaceful purposes and science. And this brings in an anomaly between your territorial sovereignty and the treaty itself. Because international law states that if you don't show the intent and will to act as a sovereign, and if you don't have the manifestations of state authority, then you can't have that bit. So remembering that the treaty doesn't extinguish the claims, the claimants still need to, and can, through the operation of intertemporal law, continue claiming as if they'd always had it and the treaty doesn't really make much difference. So how can they do that? Well, the approach of many commentators on Antarctic affairs is to say that physical presence is the most is the shibboleth of territorial sovereignty in Antarctica. And that's really hard, as you can imagine. They look at the footprint of states, they compare them, they look at the pie, the, the sector shapes, and they argue that there's absolutely no way that anyone could have sovereignty over them. But this footprint concept is actually a really narrow way legally of looking at territorial sovereignty, both in Antarctica and generally. While presence is still an element, we can shift away this uh, in the 21st century from the grossly oversimplified notion of footprint. 
Antarctica is a complex matrix of title to territory and includes aspects of the Antarctic Treaty and other legal rights that existed pre-treaty. But most importantly, modern analysis of treaty and territorial acquisition bring into play notions of Asian, South American and African notions of title to territory because that's been the greatest area of case law and evidence over the last 40 or so years. And this is paired up in international tribunals with more Westphalian and Western concepts. And there's actually a new way of looking at, well, more modern way of looking at territorial sovereignty. You're not supposed to be able to read that very clearly. Basically, it's a demonstration of how complex uh, an investigation of title to territory in Antarctica can actually be. It's a hierarchical indicia of sovereignty, of treaty law and of state practice. And essentially, it's legal rights, effectiveness, equitable principles and extent-based consensus, along with a few random things like, is your culture important when it comes to your territorial acquisition? This approach concludes that Australia and claimants do have that traditional concept of territorial sovereignty over some areas. And yes, this is mostly related to activities of claimant states, but mostly prior to the Antarctic Treaty. But as for the vast hinterland, as you could have seen in the last slide, there's not much activity happening there. And this can be seen through a contextual uh, lens, or you could also have a look at the fact that there are more than one type of sovereignty. Those of you who have leases, you, in an analogy, have a different type of sovereignty over your house. You still have rights, you still have uh, rights to particular things in that house, but it's not quite the maximum of if whether or not you held the indefeasible deed. So there's plenty of mutations of title, and that includes condominiums, protectorates, co-imperiums and mandated territories. And these mutations allow for some control and allow for others to have rights too, such as the customary right to visit the continent for scientific research as they currently are. So it's more than just the footprint on the continent. Now, does the treaty actually work in terms of a sovereign, uh, a sovereign state such as Australia? There are problems of jurisdiction. Enforceability of any domestic law down there is difficult in many cases. It's beginning, becoming increasingly difficult to manage the multinational, multi-flag tourism companies and the fur-lined seats and the oak tables of the white desert operations. There have been plenty of yachts that go down there in an unauthorised way. You normally have to have a permit to go down there, but what's to stop someone just going there anyway? And that would be... To any other state, you can't just enter a state without a passport, that sort of thing. So you can see that that's an affront to the territorial sovereignty of the claimant states. There are also issues of resource management, as Anne-Marie has mentioned, in the Southern Ocean, particularly in terms of IUU fishing. And I stress as we approach an era of unprecedented climate change, of greater membership, of more tourism, of finite resources, that we do actually need to start changing the conversation about Antarctic Territory. We need to stop talking about the end of the Antarctic Treaty as if it would be an all-or-nothing 
in terms of territorial sovereignty? Will it suddenly become a commons of some sort? I feel that territorial rights are actually a protection against what I see, chaos of the commons. And I see that on the high seas and the lack of enforceability that we see out there. And I do have a dim view on the sorts of management that could be replaced if all of a sudden there was no territorial sovereignty. For example, the nine major scientific programs in Antarctica would suddenly probably be less, less appealing. So while it's imperfect, Antarctic sovereignty and ambiguity is not what they call a purgatory because they've often called Article 4 the purgatory of ambiguity. Rather, I see it as functionally imperfect. So in closing, and on a much broader note, and perhaps we can talk about this here, and it's good to see lots of really young people here, I'm Gen Y, and I'm looking another 40 to 50 years in the workforce and hopefully in this area. My kids, if I have any, will probably live to see 2100, which is the date that John King was just talking about. And I'd be bitterly disappointed if I did the rounds on my retirement to hear that the same old tired arguments of territorial sovereignty about whose footprint is bigger than the others were still, still in discourse. So what I think we need to talk about in Antarctica is how we encourage greater <coughs> scientific endeavour and innovation on the continent to directly solve these issues that are melting Antarctica pretty much as we speak to create renewable resources that will completely negate the issue of sovereignty over Antarctic resources and to include other nations who will probably be, who probably don't have the capacity to go down and do the science but can actually, will be the greatest impacted in climate change. So there's no reason that the current territorial claim and the treaty system that we can't achieve these incredibly important things. So thank you very much. Um, I got my alphabet wrong, and uh, <laughs> Matt should be next, but I had announced that Tony was next. Can we, can we skip the alphabet? Yeah, I was going to point out that you had the alphabet wrong. Yeah, I'm a bit, <laughs> bit jet-lagged. Right. Tony Press. Thank you. It's very nice to be back here at my alma mater. Um, Antarctica is a profoundly inspiring place. It's inspiring because of its vastness, its stark beauty, and its sheer otherness. To be in Antarctica is to be in a place that most of the world is completely unfamiliar with. Antarctica is also inspiring because of its power as the engine room of global ocean circulation and its key role in the global climate system. It's inspiring because within its ice there lies the history of our planet's climate and the key to our future. It's also 
an inspiring place because there is no other significant region on earth that is free from the troubles and conflicts you see every day in the media in every other part of the planet. The Antarctic Treaty, which came into effect in 1961, negotiated in the late 1950s, was the first post-World War II disarmament treaty. The first region of the planet to be declared free from nuclear weapons. And the first significant area of the world to be devoted to science. The Antarctic Treaty was the first instalment in a series of international agreements which are now referred to as the Antarctic Treaty System. The unique features of the Antarctic Treaty is the setting aside of the arguments about sovereignty, not setting aside sovereignty, but setting aside the argument about sovereignty. the deflation of the tensions that had built up between the US and the Soviet Union over the perceived militarisation of Antarctica and the explicit declaration that signatories to the Antarctic Treaty would collaborate in peace and science in this huge part of the planet. Over the years since 1961, the Antarctic Treaty System has evolved with the negotiation of the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, which provides a comprehensive regime for managing and conserving the marine resources of Antarctica, and significantly the Madrid Protocol, which establishes a comprehensive environmental regime for Antarctica and indefinitely bans mining in the continent. The success of the Antarctic Treaty System is reflected in its stability and its resilience since 1961. Major challenges which had been portended by many commentators as threats uh, or even the harbingers of the end of the system have been generally resolved and accommodated by the flexibility uh, that the Antarctic Treaty System provides for managing different worldviews uh, and different opinions about Antarctica's sovereignty and Antarctica's place in the global system. The decision by Australia and France, for instance, to walk away from the Minerals Convention, which had been negotiated and was about to be signed, 
on the Friday of the international meeting, the Australian, negotiation, the Australian delegation was urging people, all members, to come and sign the negotiated Minerals Convention. On the Monday morning, they walked back and said, Australia is not going to ratify the Minerals Convention. Australia and France are going to negotiate a comprehensive environmental regime for Antarctica. That was probably the single biggest political upheaval in the Antarctic Treaty System in 1989. <coughs> but within two years, the Antarctic Treaty parties had walked away from the Con Minerals Convention and negotiated a comprehensive environmental treaty to cover Antarctica. The Antarctic Treaty survived the Cold War. It also survived the challenge that Australia initially put on the table by declaring that it was going to gather the information that it might use at some point in the future to define an extended continental shelf off the Australian Antarctic Territory. It also survived the debates in the United Nations about whether the Antarctic Treaty System or the United Nations should manage the Antarctica, the Antarctic, led by Malaysia and the G77. Survived the Falklands War, where two key Antarctic Treaty nations uh, were able to sit down around the Antarctic Treaty meetings and make decisions together while still being at war with each other. My view isn't as pessimistic uh, as Anne-Marie Brady, Anne Brady's view. I think, I do not think that the Antarctic Treaty system as a whole is an antiquated gentleman's club. And I certainly think, particularly uh, with its evolution uh, and the influx of new players, it will evolve to face the conflicts of the world. It may be cumbersome, but then consensus, which requires everybody to not disagree, is a very, very powerful thing when decisions are made by consensus everyone is on board and that's one of the powers of the Antarctic Treaty system. I disagree that military operations in Antarctica, search and rescue by China and others amounts to a breach of the Articles of the Antarctic Treaty. I also disagree that the Antarctic Treaty system has no enforcement power. I think the international actions that have been taken, particularly against illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing in the Antarctic show the extra and geographically extra Antarctic reach of the Antarctic Treaty System uh, and the way the system can enforce Antarctic issues. <coughs> I'm now just going to finish off on one particular myth and it's one that Anne-Marie declined to uh, comment on, but one that everybody sees 
from time to time in the newspapers. And that is that somehow in 2048 or sometime thereabouts, mining will begin in Antarctica because that's when the ban on mining in Antarctica finishes. Well, it doesn't. Article 7 of, uh, of the Antarctic um, Protocol on Environmental Management prohibits mining indefinitely. It then provides uh, that a series uh, of provisions that may at some time in the future allow the Madrid Protocol or parts of it to be renegotiated, including uh, the ban on mining in Antarctica, but the hurdles to overcoming that mining ban are enormous. It would require, for instance, every party that was a signatory to the Madrid Protocol back in 1991 to agree. That would mean that countries like Australia, who have stated all forms of government that mining will never occur in Antarctica. It would require them to accept mining in Antarctica. I don't see that being a reality in 2048 or even decades beyond then. I think the physical, economic and resource value of the Antarctic will make those kinds of political obstacles insurmountable. And just to wind up and refer to comments about sovereignty and the importance of sovereignty, my view is that even if Australia did not have a sovereign claim to the Antarctic, that we should and would be down there doing Antarctic science because without it we won't have the knowledge to understand how our climate is changing and how it will claim it will change in the future. Antarctic science is fundamental to the future of humanity, and on that point I'll hand over to Matt. Thank you very much. <laughs> Matt King. Well, thank you. And, uh, um, can I say that I, I, I've been doing a few public talks in Tasmania where I was born and bred, and it's great to be with an audience who I don't share any DNA with uh, to begin <laughs> with. So that's, that's wonderful uh, that you've come out tonight to support this work. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the physical climate uh, in Antarctica and how it's changing, uh, not just how it's changing, but how it's expected to change. Um, and I think this is where, for a lot of people, uh, this is where their focus narrows... Uh, because somehow Antarctica comes to us, uh, at least in the form of sea level change. Um, so Antarctica 
the Antarctica that I'm going to talk about is really the, the land ice that sits on the continent of Antarctica. It's the Antarctica that affects sea level change. Uh, for, for some, there's another Antarctica that is the seasonal sea ice cover uh, that grows and shrinks uh, each year, which doesn't uh, directly affect sea level change but has a profound impact on the world's climate nonetheless. <coughs> Antarctica is in the balance when you think about that land ice. Uh, and it's a balance of two things uh, that are important to understand. It's a balance of the melting of Antarctica. And Antarctica is melting uh, or flowing out into the ocean at a rate of 3,000 billion tonnes per year. Now, the other side of the story is that it's also snowing in Antarctica. Um, and it's snowing at a rate of about 3,000 billion tonnes per year. And so the balance is how about is about. How do those two things cancel each other out? Uh, or indeed, do they not cancel each other out? Are they, is it snowing more than it's leaving the continent in the form of ice? Or is it leaving the continent in the form of ice faster than it's snowing? That's the equation, a very simple equation, that will govern the effect of sea level change on Antarctica, uh, sea level change, Antarctica's role in sea level change uh, now and in the future. So the question comes to, first of all, well, how do we know what's happening in Antarctica? And, and, uh, and thanks to um, billions of dollars of investment, largely from international space agencies like NASA and the European Space Agency, um, we can now say, after many years of trying and then a couple of decades of using satellites, that we largely know um, what is happening to the Antarctic ice sheet and how it's contributing to sea level. For the first time in history, in about 2012, we got to that point. Uh, after at least five decades or six decades of endeavours, intense in uh, scientific endeavours in the continent. And we've learned that uh, Antarctica has not just been contributing to sea level, but it's been apparently accelerating in that over the last two decades. Greenland has been also contributing and, and contributing at a faster rate and accelerating perhaps at a faster rate. And so the two great ice sheets of Greenland and Antarctica now equate to uh, all the small glaciers all around the world that have been melting and retreating. But of course those glaciers will one day retreat well up into the mountains in the Alps, in the Europe and in New Zealand and Alaska uh, and there'll be no further contribution because uh, you, you won't be able to see them. Uh, but Antarctica will still be there until 58 metres of sea level rises come out of Antarctica uh, or thereabouts. Uh, that's going to take a long time to happen, well below our, below, uh, beyond our lifetime. But nonetheless, Antarctica and Greenland are very important for the future of sea level change. Oops. Uh, there we go. Um, the, the key thing, though, isn't the overall number, even though some of those things seem alarming. The most alarming thing is where Antarctica is changing. Uh, there are vast areas uh, where the ice surface is not changing particularly at all. Um, the majority of Antarctica is not changing in a measurable way um, that would concern us in, as we think about sea level change. But there are key parts of the Antarctic ice sheet which are changing dramatically, where we have glaciers that are 50 kilometres wide and hundreds of kilometres long that are lowering at several metres per year. Uh, and those areas are particularly concerning because... They represent the gateways to the vast interior of the Antarctic ice sheet. If you strip off the ice from Antarctica, we see that actually huge amounts of the ice 
rests on bedrock that sits below sea level. And the consequence of this is that the ocean can always get at the ice. The warm ocean, relatively warm, you wouldn't want to go swimming in it, but nonetheless warm enough to melt ice, is always present at the interface of the ice sheet. And uh, where there's water, uh, well, uh, Antarctica ice, Antarctic ice hates water. And we are in a situation where those gateways are beginning to open up and the ocean can continue to melt uh, and drive retreat and sea level change. Uh, so what does that mean for the, um, the future of the Antarctic ice sheet? Well, we, let's think about Greenland to begin with. Greenland has a threshold uh, into the future. We don't know when the threshold will be passed, but we know that there is a warming threshold based on the best computer models that we have. Uh, somewhere between 0.8 degrees global warming above the pre-industrial levels uh, and about 2.2 degrees, we've committed to losing the Greenland uh, ice sheet at some stage into the future, hundreds of years probably down the track. Now, in 2016, we're about 1.2 or 1.3 degrees above pre-industrial, so we're safely in the ballpark of where we may have already committed to losing the Greenland ice sheet and its five or six metres of sea level potential. Antarctica is not like Greenland. Uh, there's a very simple linear relation, it seems, with Antarctica. For every degree that you warm the planet, you get about 1.2 metres of sea level. This is at least the, the baseline. I'll show you in a moment that it may go up from there. Um, but it is a, it's an interesting and uh, gripping fact that as we warm up the planet, we are eventually committing. This doesn't come out of Antarctica immediately, but we're eventually committing uh, our descendants to a, a coastline around the world that doesn't look like the coastline that we experience and live in now. The, the key question, though, is the time scale. Is this 100 years that we have to adapt to several metres of sea level rise, or is it thousands of years in which we can incrementally and slowly adapt? Uh, this is one model forecast, a computer model forecast looking forward to 2500 and what the Antarctic ice sheet would look like if we seriously mitigated our greenhouse gas emissions around the world. In fact, some of those scenarios would require us to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And we end up with an Antarctica that looks pretty much like what it does today, um, uh, four and a half centuries into the future. On the other hand, if we move to a business-as-usual scenario, we end up with an Antarctica that does not look like it does today. Uh, in fact, we see an Antarctica that somehow contributed about 20 metres uh, to sea level rise. Um, 2,500 is a long way into the future, um, but if we look at... I think the batteries are fine. There we go. If we look at um, the business-as-usual scenario to 2,100 we see now that Antarctica may well contribute um, about 0.7 or 0.8 metres of sea level by 2100. That's in addition to the contribution from Greenland and the small glaciers and thermal expansion. Um, and this is perhaps an upper-end scenario. Um, these numbers are far from uh, robust in the sense that these are still evolving. These studies are being published even 2016, as you can see. Um, but there is the potential for a dramatic reshaping of the Antarctic ice sheet in this century. And of course, we need to talk about Antarctica for this reason. Uh, 
because we know that sea levels, uh, as well as the other effects of climate change, drive coastal change, significant coastal change that affects all of us. Now, we may not live um, on the beach, um, but $226 billion of Australia's infrastructure lies within 1.1 metres of sea level. Now, if Antarctica contributes more, uh, as I've just showed you, and contributes actually something more like half a metre or 0.6 of a metre or 0.8 of a metre, that number goes up. Uh, that number was based on about 0.3 metres of contribution from Antarctica. So all Australians face the consequence of uh, increased taxation associated with uh, damaged infrastructure or infrastructure that needs to be relocated. But I think as one of the richest nations on the planet, it's good for us to dwell about one of the poorer nations on the planet, uh, where millions of people live behind a seawall that's only about 50 centimetres high. Uh, these are our, our regional neighbours, some of the poorer people on the planet, and uh, I think we would do well to not just think about Antarctica, but to think about our neighbours there as well. Thank you for your time.